San Marino Community Presbyterian Church this summer is in a series of sermons on the parables. And the parable for today is a very familiar parable of the prodigal son. The word parable comes from a compound word, parabole. Para means alongside, bole means to throw. A parable is something that Jesus threw alongside people as they were walking through their life. So a parable often slipped behind people's defenses because it didn't seem like it was a religious story or a God story. It just seemed like it was a story, kind of a harmless story. But then as Jesus told the story and people started to realize the implications of it, they realized their life would never be the same again if they took this story seriously. So these parables, parabole, are thrown alongside life And what Jesus wants us to do is to let those parables sink in. And if we do, then we will have our life reframed or rethought as the title of our sermon series is this summer. Before I read the scripture, I just want to say how honored I am to be here. It's a joy to give Jeff O'Grady, your wonderful senior pastor, a little respite from all of his preaching. And I'm honored to be here this summer to give him a well-deserved sabbatical. I think the world of this church... Suzanne and I love worshiping here, and it's a joy for me and an honor to be here today. Would you look at the scripture reading in your bulletin from Luke 15, 11 to 32, and don't let the familiarity of the parable fool you. This parable might change our lives. Then Jesus said there was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that will belong to me. So he divided his property between them. A few days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and traveled to a distant country, and there he squandered his property in dissolute living. When he had spent everything, a severe famine took place throughout that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him to the fields to feed the pigs. He would gladly have filled himself with the pods that the pigs were eating, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired hands have bread enough and to spare? But here I am dying of hunger. I will get up and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands. So he set off and went to his father. But while he was still far off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion, and he ran and put his arms around him and kissed him. Then the son said to his father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But his father said to the slaves, Quickly, bring out a robe, the best one, and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet, and get the fatted calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his elder son was in the field. And when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. He called one of the slaves and asked, what's going on? The slave replied, your brother has come. And your father has killed the fatted calf because he got him back safe and sound. Then the elder son became angry and refused to go in. His father came out and began to plead with him, but he answered his father, Listen, 
For all these years I've been working like a slave for you, and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you have never given me even a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came back, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. Then the father said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and he has come to life. He was lost and now he has been found. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Will you pray with me? Gracious God, pour through me the gift of preaching that these words might literally, O oh God, be your living word to us. And may they strike a chord deep within us. To that end, may each one of us take the next step on our journey of faith with you. And we know we will, O oh God, for we pray with anticipation in the strong name of Jesus Christ. And may all God's people say, Amen. I love the story of the five-year-old boy who was just getting underfoot when his mother and father were having a dinner party. They were planning for the party. They were decorating for the party, cooking for the party. The father had run out to do a few last-minute errands. The mother was still decorating and cleaning and cooking. And the mother told the boy in no uncertain terms to behave himself, but he just was a nuisance. You know what I mean? This five-year-old boy just always kept getting in the way. And the last straw was when the mother came down after getting dressed, and the boy had eaten all of the cherries off of all of the fruit salads at the dinner table. The mother was livid. She was mad. And she picked up something to hit the boy with. And all she could find was a fly swatter. So she took the fly swatter. And they had a big porch all the way around the house. She chased him all the way around the porch. And the boy scampered down the front steps of the house, got on his hands and knees, crawled way back under the porch. The mother was about to do this. But just then the dad drove in from doing an errand. And the mother told him what the son had done and said, I want you to go under that porch and punish him. So the father got down on his hands and knees and he crawls under the porch. As he crawled way back to under the porch, he saw the two eyes of his little son staring at him. And as the father crawled over toward his little son, he heard the little boy say, is she after you too? <laughs> I love that story. The good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that God is after us. But God is not after us in order to punish us or to get us. God is after us in order to save us and to find us in our lostness, to call us out of our lost places and to welcome us home. Although the parable of the lost son or the prodigal son is one of the most familiar parables in all the Bible, and many of us know this parable, it is frankly one of the least understood parables in all of Scripture. And I believe the reason it's so often misunderstood is it's incorrectly named. In the Bible, sometimes it lists the lost son. But it's not a story of one lost boy. There are two lost sons in this story. One is lost in rebellion in a far country, and the other is lost in his self-righteousness. Make no mistake about it. Jesus is saying that both rebellion when you run away from God and self-righteousness when you always think you're right and you understand God are both deadly 
spiritual conditions. The other name of the parable that's often misunderstood, we call it the parable of the prodigal son. And the word prodigal is kind of an enigma. The word prodigal means extravagant, uh, lavish, uh, over the top. And although the, that word does describe, in a sense, the way the younger boy took the inheritance, it was extravagant and lavish the way he spent it, actually, I think, it shouldn't be called the parable of the prodigal son. The parable should be called the parable of the prodigal God. Because actually, the one who was lavish and extravagant and over the top in his love in the story is God. Tim Keller of Redeemer Church in New York, a friend of mine from New York City, uses this in a book titled The Prodigal God. I would recommend it to you. But God is the prodigal in the story. So as we examine these two lost boys in the story, I'd love to have a discussion with all of you over a cup of coffee or walk around the beautiful grounds of the church and ask you, with which boy, this younger son or the older son, do you most identify and why? Well, first of all, in the story, we see the younger son. It's surprising and shocking in the Middle East that this younger son would have asked for his inheritance before his father had died. What the younger boy is really saying in the Middle East, who, where they respect their parents and they respect their elders, what this younger boy is really saying is, Dad, I want you to drop dead. I value your money more than I value you. But equally surprising in the story is that the father grants his request. The father gives him his inheritance ahead of time. Now, can we be honest enough at San Marino to say on this Father's Day that, that although we glamorize parenting so often, parenting is just plain hard work? Can we be honest enough to say that sometimes being a father or being a mother is very, very challenging? And one of the hardest issues any parent has to face is, when do you say yes to your children, no matter what age they are, and when do you say no to them? How much freedom do you give your children, whatever age they are? And do you allow your children to reap the consequences of their own poor choices? See, this is what this father does. He's not an overly permissive parent. This father in the story who really represents God is really loving his son enough to, to know that this probably is a bad choice that he's making, but he allows him to reap the consequences of his poor choice and go off into the far country and take the inheritance. Sometimes God loves us enough to say no, and sometimes God loves us enough to say yes, but to allow us to learn a very important lesson so this boy squanders all, he goes out into the far country and he squanders his living. Remember that the younger son in the book of Leviticus, it says in the Jewish law that the younger son would have gotten one third of all the father's estate and the older son would have had two thirds. That's very important to remember. It's also important to remember that when that younger son went out, he could have been disciplined for this. The father could have disciplined him when he sent him out, but he doesn't do that. He gives him the permission to go out, and we don't know what the father had to do to get the one-third. Most of the father's money must have been tied up in real estate. Did the father sell off some shares of real estate? We don't know, but what we do know is that when the boy goes out, he hits rock bottom. He's going out into the fields to feed the pigs and the swine, and for a Jewish boy... To be feeding the pigs and the swine for a Jewish boy to have been so starving that he would gladly have eaten out of the trough that the pig was eating out that is the lowest of the low he hit absolute rock bottom 
Have you ever hit rock bottom? Has there ever been a time in your life when you had to say the three hardest words in the language to say in any language, I need help? This boy realizes he's blown it. I made a big mistake. As he's so hungry, he would like to have eaten out of the pig trough. He's thinking about all the father's hired servants at home, not the sons in the family, but the father's hired servants who have bread enough and to spare, and he's perishing there in hunger. And he decides to start to take a U-turn, repentance, take a U-turn, and turn back toward his father and go home. Now, it's one thing to make a decision to turn around, and that's the first step in getting healthy, is to admit your need. But the long road home is often arduous. And as this young boy thinks about going home, he's made the decision to go back, but as he thinks about what it's going to cost him to go back, he's really afraid to admit to his father what he has done, and he's trying to rehearse his speech. Have you ever done this? You've done something wrong, and you had to tell somebody about it, and so you rehearse what you're going to say in your mind. You get it in your mind over and over, and he says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as a hard servant. He recognizes he's forfeited his ability to be a son. He is now all he can hope for is to be a hired servant who lives somewhere else, doesn't live in the house, but to work in the house and be a hired servant. Maybe he can make a few bucks doing that, but his stomach is in knots when he's trying to come home. How vividly I remember when I was 16 years old and had just gotten my driver's license. And the first night I asked my dad for the car and I went to a basketball game. And after the basketball game, all these kids asked me for rides. And I was so excited and kind of thought I was so cool to have a car to drive to the game. And I was saying yes to all these kids. And when I got to my car, there were seven kids who were piling into my car. And there should only have been four or five and five at the very most. But there were seven kids in my car. And I knew I had disobeyed my dad, but I couldn't say no to these kids. And so I'm driving over to get something to eat after the ball game with these seven kids in the car, and a telephone pole jumps off the corner of the street right into my car, and I had an accident. I wish that had been the case, but actually I hit that telephone pole, and the hardest call I ever had to make in my life was to say, Dad, I wrecked your car. And what's worse, I had seven kids in it, and I made a big mistake, and I'm really sorry. And my stomach was in knots. Has your stomach ever been in knots? And this boy's stomach is in knots. And I was wondering, what's my dad going to say? And this boy's wondering about all that as he's coming home. And he's starting home. And he comes over the hill and gets near the house. And as he comes over the hill, the Bible says, while he was yet at a distance. These are wonderful words. They mean the father has been waiting for this boy. Helmut Thielicke, the great German theologian, has this great book called The Waiting Father. It says the father had sleepless nights. He was, couldn't sleep, couldn't relax till this boy came home. Have you ever been waiting for a son or daughter to come home from a date or from a trip and the plane is delayed or they're delayed and you're thinking about all these things could happen and every second is excruciating. This father, every second is excruciating as he's waiting for this boy and he finally sees him and he goes running down. He, he abandons all the Middle Eastern aristocracy and standing up straight and having the long flowing robes. He abandons all that. He's running down the road. Middle Eastern fathers didn't run. This father runs down the road and his, his sandals are flying and the dust is flying up and he's carrying, he's holding up his robe so he can go faster and faster. He can't wait to get to that boy. And the boy's rehearsing the speech and the dad gets close to him. And I think the boy, it'd be so wonderful to see a movie about this, but the, the young boy is practicing the speech. 
Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And the dad is already called, signaling to the servants, hey, quickly, quickly, come and bring the best robe. We don't want just any ordinary coat for this boy. Bring the best robe we've got in the house. And that's probably the father's robe, scholars say. Bring sandals for his feet. This boy, his, his shoes are threadbare. If he had shoes, his sandals are maybe gone at this point, maybe worn down. But bring good sandals for him. Put a ring on his finger. The only ones who got a ring were members of the family. This boy is not going to be treated as a hired servant. This boy is going to be restored as a son. And quickly kill the fatted calf and bring it. Bring this fatted calf and kill the fatted calf. This is not five guys' burgers and fries that they're going to serve here. This is a big meal that's going to be served. Prime ribs of beef, the finest filet mignon. And this is a celebration of music and dancing. This is a wonderful celebration because the father got the son back whole and restored. And the celebration begins. Make no mistake about it. Here we see the extravagant, reckless, lavish love of God. This boy's stomach was in knots because he knew that the, the people in the village could have been waiting for him at the crest of the hill. And when he came over the crest of the hill and they saw him, the fathers in the village, the brothers in the village, the men in the village could have all worked him over and brought him in disgrace, dragging him in disgrace to the father. That's why his stomach is in knots. But he actually received all this by grace, free, unmerited favor. It's in the Bible, the heavenly banquet is often pictured as a huge banquet. This is what heaven is like. This is what the kingdom of God is like. This banquet full of prime ribs of beef and all this great food and music and dancing and celebration and wine is all symbolic of God's kingdom. This is the lavish, extravagant love of God. So why doesn't the story end here? I mean, this parable's going along well. The boy's restored. He's a full son. He's restored back into the house. He's given up his one-third now, but he's now living off the two-thirds of the older brother. He's living off of the father. It's a good story. Why doesn't Jesus stop right there? Jesus is a master teacher. If we could go back and look at the first two verses of Luke chapter 15... It says, the, fair, the tax collectors and sinners are all drawing near to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and scribes murmured, saying, this man receives sinners and even eats with them. So Jesus tailors the parable to the audience. He weaves in the younger brother in the story, who are the tax collectors and sinners, the people who've done wrong and know their need and know they made a mistake, and he weaves them into the story, and he weaves the older brother into the story, too, who are the Pharisees and the scribes. Whenever the Pharisees and scribes are pictured in the Bible, they're either murmuring or grumbling. They're always mad about something. And what, they're, what this older brother is mad about is his brother came home, and he got something, and the older brother thought he deserved it. Do you remember that old Smith Barney ad? That Smith Barney finances, and, the, and John Houseman is playing the lead role, and he says, at Smith Barney, we make money the old-fashioned way. We earn it. And that's what this older brother wanted to do. He wanted to earn the love and respect of his father. He didn't want somebody getting it who didn't deserve it. He thought he earned it. But the older boy is lost in his self-righteousness. 
Do you know that at a Middle Eastern banquet, the older brother should have been the host at the banquet? He should have welcomed all the guests at the door and then brought them to the father. That's the way it was at a Middle Eastern banquet. This older boy could have been punished. He could have had this shun by all the people in the village. They could have beaten him up because he refused to go into the party. And he says, lo, these many years I've worked, served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet this son of yours, notice not my brother, this son of yours goes and squanders your living with prostitutes. You know, nobody said anything about prostitutes in the beginning, but this boy is now getting into this. Have you ever been so mad that it just goes on and on and on? You build something up bigger and bigger and bigger. This son of yours came who devoured your living with prostitutes, and you killed the fatted calf for him. You never even gave me a little goat to make merry with my friends, but this son of yours comes and you kill the fatted calf. You have the prime ribs of beef for him. What gives? And the boy refuses to go in. Now this next scene is a tender scene. The word in Greek for son is technon. But this translation of son literally means my precious child. This Middle Eastern dad who ran down the road, robes flying to greet the younger boy. You might think, well, he loves the younger boy more than the older boy. Not so. He loves the older boy enough that he goes out to him. And the Bible says he pleads with him. He begs him to come in. And then he says, my precious, precious child, you are always with me. And all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and make merry because this, this brother of yours was dead. And now he's alive. He was lost. And now he's found and this father who's symbolic of God has crawled under the porch to meet this older boy. He crawled under the porch to meet the younger boy, but he's not crawling under the porch to call this older boy out of the darkness, out of his hiding, into the light. And the boy lived so many years with the father, and he never knew his dad's heart. Is there anybody here who's got a broken relationship with your dad or with a parent or with a child or a sibling or a grandchild? And it's one of life's toughest things when there's a knot in that relationship. This older brother can't be married because he's upset. He's right. He wants to be right. He wants to earn the love of the father. And he lived all these years with the dad, but he never really knew his father G.K. Chesterton, the great author and a great Christian, said the most dangerous spiritual disease is thinking that one is quite well. And when the London Times interviewed Chesterton and asked him, Dr. Chesterton, what's wrong with our world? Chesterton answered in two words, I am. See, don't you love the humility of Chesterton? He can admit he's wrong. He can admit that he's wrong. But this older brother can't admit he's wrong. He's stiff and he's right. And he can't enjoy, he can't forgive his brother. And he can't recognize there's any need in me. I think there's a word for the church here. For the last 10 years, I've been devoting my life to working with churches, trying to renew them through a ministry called Macedonian Ministry. I've worked with now over 400 congregations around America of 24 different denominations, trying to spread church renewal. And you know what I hear? Churches are trying to invite younger people into the church. And what they're trying to do is, is have the cool factor. If we give them a, a latte or have a pastor in skinny jeans or, or if we have the cool factor, that'll bring in the young people. 
But you know what the young people who I've interviewed are telling me? We're not leaving the church because we don't find the cool factor there. We're leaving the church because we don't find Jesus there. We see a lot of elder brothers and elder sisters who are stiff and joyless. And, and what we need is we want the extravagant grace of a God who loves us more than we love ourselves and who crawls on his hands and knees under the porch to call us out of the darkness into the light. We want a church more like Alcoholics Anonymous where people can admit our need and say, I need help, I'm an alcoholic, and where we can all share our hurts and brokenness and we can forgive and rejoice with one another. Oh, I wish we had an hour. There's so many insights into this parable, but there's one more point I think we need to make about this parable. And that is that although some of us maybe tend more to be the younger son or some of us may tend more to be the older son, everybody, everybody is called by God to become the father. Now, I don't mean that you have to be male or a father in that sense, but everyone is called to express the extravagant love of God to others in the world as the Father expressed the extravagant love of God. William Barclay, the great biblical expositor, says there's two great days in a person's life, the day you're born and the day you discover why. And Barclay says we're on the face of the earth to be conduits of the extravagant love of God to a broken world, whether you're a mother or a grandmother or a father or a grandfather or a CEO or a doctor or retired or working or a business executive or a neighbor or a student, we're all called to be conduits of the extravagant love of God to others. And when people see this extravagant love of God, like these young people are starving for Jesus, they want to be a part of it. I saw this extravagant love of God so beautifully illustrated at a wedding I did some years ago for a groom named Andrew and a bride named Melissa. They came to see me in my office and they asked me if I would come to Ohio and perform the wedding. I wanted to do it in the church, but they explained the reason was that Melissa's mother, Anne, in her mid-70s at that time, had Alzheimer's. And she used to be able to say to her husband, I love you, and he would say, I love you too. And then he would say, I love you, and she would, couldn't say anything, but she could just squeeze his hand, I love you too. And now it's gotten so bad, Melissa said, that my mom can't even squeeze anymore. All she can do is groan and drool. And Tom, I can't embarrass her and bring her into a church. Would you please fly to our farmhouse in, in, in Ohio? There's a beautiful yellow farmhouse. We'll put up white chairs. And would you do the wedding on the porch in the, in the front of our house? And, and maybe some of your words will kind of waft up to my mom's bedroom and she can hear that I'm getting married. Oh, please, Tom, won't you come to Ohio and perform the wedding? Well, what would you have said? Well, of course, I flew to Ohio with my wife, Suzanne, and I performed the wedding. And it was harder than I thought, frankly, Andrew had gone to Stanford and Melissa went to Harvard and they both met at Dartmouth Graduate School, the Tuck School of Business. It was harder because all the groomsmen or bridesmaids were tall and handsome and beautiful and gorgeous, but they were all graduates of either Harvard, Stanford, or Dartmouth. It was sickening, really. I mean, these kids were, were so good-looking and so handsome and so smart. And, and what was sickening was they knew how smart and good-looking they were. I mean, here's how bad it was. At the rehearsal, when How Great Thou Art was sung, they thought it was about them. So I'm trying to just line them up and give them instructions, and they weren't interested in me. Well, the day of the wedding came, and I went to see Anne and the mother and Melissa, the bride, and Bill, the father, and we all went into Anne's room, and Bill and Aunt Bill sat on the edge of the bed next to his wife of well over 50 years, and 
they were holding hands and Bill and was holding her hand and Anne was groaning and drooling. And Melissa then sat with them and I stood and held hands with them and I prayed the best prayer I could for the wedding and I said to Anne, I, I hope you enjoy your daughter's wedding. She loves you very much and you've been a wonderful mom and, and Anne was still groaning. So I went down and put on my robe and stole and went to the front porch with Andrew the groom and started to perform the wedding and the the Amazing Grace was played by bagpipers and all this music was glorious and the white chairs were beautiful and first the cocky groomsmen came down the aisle and they kind of stood at one side and the cocky bridesmaids came down the aisle and they stood on the other side and now Bill, the father, escorts Melissa, the daughter, down the aisle and, and he hands her to Andrew and everything's going well and Bill's going to go sit in the chair right in, in the front except instead of sitting there, he walks around the side of the house, and I wonder, where is he going? I'm saying to the, the people on the bagpipe, just string it out a little bit and keep this thing going. And, and then it happened. Bill comes around the side of the house carrying his wife of over 50 years, who weighed 97 pounds. And he sits her in the chair next to him, and he sits down, and Ann puts her head in his shoulder and he puts his arm around her so I start the wedding dearly beloved we're gathered here in the presence of God and these witnesses to unite Andrew and Melissa in holy matrimony and as soon as I said that Anne stopped groaning I think the Holy Spirit said to her you're at your daughter's wedding listen and she started to listen we went through the ceremony we sang how great thou art the groomsmen thought it was about them and I go to perform the vows and Andrew and Melissa hold hands with one another. And you could see Bill and Anne silhouetted through Andrew and Melissa. The groomsmen are over here and the bridesmaids are over here. And they're holding hands with each other. And you could look through and see Bill and Anne. And Anne's got her head on his shoulder and he's got his arm around her. And he's rubbing her cheek like this. And he's whispering the vows in her ear. As I said, I, Andrew, take you, Melissa. I, Andrew, take you, Melissa. To be my lawfully wedded wife. And I do promise and covenant before God and these witnesses to be your loving and faithful husband in plenty and in want, in joy and in sorrow, in sickness and in health. And as soon as I said in sickness and in health, I looked over at one of these very cocky bride, bridesmaids and very cocky groomsmen. Tears were streaming down their face. And they looked out and silhouetted through. They saw Bill and Anne loving one another. Well, I pronounced... Andrew and Melissa, husband and wife, they went down the aisle, and after the wedding, all the grooms and bridesmaids couldn't wait to see me. The night before at the rehearsal dinner, they didn't have any time for me because I was just a lowly minister, and they were so cocky and bright and beautiful and handsome and gone to these great schools. But now at the reception, I couldn't get anything to eat or drink because they kept asking me, where do you get a love like that? I saw this from Bill and Ann. Where do you get a love like that? Because I think for the first time in their life, they realized they may not always look like this. They may not always have a mind like this. Bill and Anne had a great mind too at one time and Bill still had his mind but Anne didn't kind of lost her mind with Alzheimer's it was a terrible terrible thing but they saw a guy who loved his wife faithfully over more than 50 years and they said where do you get a love like that and I said oh that kind of love yeah the kind of love Bill has for Anne and Anne has for Bill where do you get that I said oh, that kind of love is humanly impossible and they said what do you mean how do you get it I said that kind of love it only comes from God you got to become a conduit of God. you got to plug into God. And then God's love will flow through you to the tough, love the tough people of our life. 
William Barclay is quite right. There are two great days in a person's life, the day you're born and the day you discover why. And one of those cocky groomsmen was so touched by that that before I left Fifth Avenue Church in New York City, I had the privilege of baptizing Schuyler in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit as he plugged into God and let God's extravagant love flow through him. He realized why he was on the face of the earth. I just close with a question. Bill and Schuyler, that cocky groomsman, discovered why they were on the face of the earth. Have we?